last week I talked about does the Bible version that we use, does it really matter what version? Tonight I'd like to just start, and this is going to be a barely scratching the surface start into this thought, where, how we got our Bible, how we got our Bible. And uh, I guess that's going to be the way it is. Kind of dark, but you'll be able to see it, I hope. How we got our Bible. I got mine given to me. I don't know about you, but that's not really what I mean. I, I gave this message kind of at camp one time, and I said, went down to the Bible bookstore, and there it was. <laughs> that's how I got my Bible. But how did it come to be available to us as it is so freely now in our bookstores? Psalm 68, verse 11 says, The Lord gave the word, great was the company of those that published it. And we're grateful for the people in that industry and in the, for the many, many, many centuries, centuries where the Bible given by God has been made correctly copied and published and copied and published until we have it today. This is not a well-designed slide, but it's actually an image instead of text, and so I can't fiddle with it as easily. If you can read it, it's, we're just going to go generally slowly through these first few points here. What we do know, the Bible that we have, the Bible is inspired by God. We call it the Bible. The Bible tends to call itself Scripture, sometimes the Word of God. Second Timothy 3 16 and 17 says all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for um, profitable for in correction for instruction for doctrine thank you for doctrine for instruction correction for instruction for for doctrine for reproof for correction instruction that the man of God may be perfect, truly furnished unto all good works. Thank you, Dr. Myers. But it starts with this straightforward statement, all scripture is given by inspiration of God. When Paul wrote that to Timothy, he was writing scripture himself. I think he knew it. But when he referred to scripture, he was referring to that which had been given down through the ages, starting with Moses and I think by the time Paul wrote that, he probably had some of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, perhaps were there as well for him to see. I don't know. Paul's letters, I believe, are called Scripture by the Apostle Peter in, in his Scripture, Second Peter. Paul, in his letters, calls Luke's Gospel Scripture on a par with Deuteronomy. So... Uh, the Bible attests to itself that it is indeed Scripture. Second Peter chapter 1, verses 20 and 21 says, For the prophecy came, is that right? Oh, good. For the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. These men of God, Moses and Samuel and David and so many we could name and some we can't name, these men of God spoke and wrote as they were, it says, moved by the Holy Spirit. Some of you, I, I like to sail a sailboat. Do any of you sail? I don't know. No? Have you ever flown in an airplane? Airplane wings have the same principle involved as sailboat sails. When you look at one, it looks like the wind is just pushing it. 
But no, there's a curved side and a back side to a sail on a sailboat and to the wing on an airplane. And if you think about it simply, the air has to go, the same air hitting that curve has to go further to get around the top of the wing than it does to go straight across the bottom of the wing. So if the same air is going further to get around than it goes straight across, the air going further has to go faster to come out at the same place. And where the air is moving faster, there's less pressure, which means there's lift to pull a wing up. Or if there's less pressure on the curved side of a sail, it pulls the sail along, which is attached to the sailboat, and so it pulls the sailboat along. That's how those things work. And it's the word that's used, holy men of God spake as they were moved, as they were borne along, not pushed, but pulled along by the Holy Spirit of God. Inspiration of God, it sounds like he breathed in, but really and truly it means he breathed it out. He breathed out the word of God. God gave the word. God gave the word. He claims responsibility for it. He used people how do you understand that? How could he write a perfect word of God using people like you and like me and like Moses and like Samuel? He used a woman, Mary, to bring his perfect son into the world. Mary wasn't perfect. She's a regular woman. She's blessed above all other women, but she's just a woman, and God used her. He superintended the putting together, if you will, of the body that Christ took on when he became God the Son. He's always been God the Son, but he became the God-man. He became the man, Christ Jesus, when he was conceived and then born by Mary. And God took the same kind of superintending care for this book, the Bible. Moses wrote, Samuel wrote, Mark wrote, Luke wrote, Peter wrote. They're all different men. They all have different styles, different vocabularies. But God says, what got written down, I'm responsible for that's the inspiration of God. God claims responsibility for it. Point two says the Bible is made of 66 books written over a period of something like 1,600 years. If Moses was 1,400 B.C., well, it's going to be only like 1,500 years, but we'll just be generous there. From approximately 1,500 B.C. to approximately 100 A.D., maybe 1,600, I don't know. More than 40 kings, prophets, leaders, and followers of Jesus. The Old Testament has 39 books written from about 1500 to 400 B.C. There's a long period between Malachi and Matthew where there's no writing going on. The New Testament has 27 books written somewhere between 45 and around 100. Some people question whether any of the New Testament books could have been written after 70 A.D. because something drastic happened in 70 A.D. that would affect everything the Roman general Titus destroyed the Jewish temple in Jerusalem. And that is, that's such a huge event. It changed Israel. It changed God's people there forever. You'd think it would have been noticed. It would be hard to write anything in that part of the world without that having an effect. So we suspect that the books are written before 70 80, except possibly John and the Revelation, uh, and maybe John's letters, I don't know. But... Uh, most of it written down before 70 A.D. The standard Hebrew Bible today, the Bible that Jewish people that use the Bible use, has the same text as the English Bible's Old Testament. We call it, 
the Old Testament, they don't, but it's still the same books. We call it 27, excuse me, we call it 39 books. They call it 22 books. They lump the 12 minor prophets together as one book. They include Lamentations with Jeremiah. There's a couple other just ways that they arrange things differently. We go the Pentateuch, the historical books, the poetical books, the prophets. They, they have just three divisions, the law, the prophets, and the writings, and they put them all in those three categories. So, but it's the same books. It's the same books. The Old Testament was written mainly in Hebrew. That was their language. What happened in the 500s BC, though, was a captivity of Judah and Benjamin by the Babylonians, Nebuchadnezzar the great king, took them all off captive. They left very few people in Judea, and so they're living in captivity in the kingdom of Babylon, where the language is like Hebrew, but not the same. It's called Aramaic or Chaldean. And so some of the book of Daniel, some of it is written in Aramaic or Chaldean. But it's so much like Hebrew that you really don't have to do another whole language. You just use a slightly different part of the dictionary. And you, if you can read Hebrew, you'll figure it out. If you can read Hebrew, you can figure anything out. <laughs> uh, it's, it's tough. <laughs> the New Testament was written in Greek. You say, well, that's, that's Greek to me. Why was it written in Greek? Why was it written in Greek? Did something happen that made Greek an important language? There was a... The Greeks didn't think of him as Greek, but a fellow named Philip up in Macedon had a desire to be thought of as cultured and educated like the Greeks down in Athens and all those other really Greek places. And so he gave great gifts of money and built a huge temple in, the, in Olympia where they had the games going. And, and they, they patronized him, but they didn't really think he was very Greek. So he had a son. His son, he hired a Greek educator to teach his son. His son's educator's name was Aristotle. You've perhaps heard of Aristotle. Socrates had a pupil named Plato. Plato had a pupil named Aristotle. They were philosophers. Aristotle had a pupil named Alexander. Alexander was not a philosopher. Alexander was a man of war like his father. And where his father had basically exerted his sway over just Greece, Alexander took the world and took the world with his Greek culture that he claimed for himself with him. And so from Spain and up in northern Europe all the way out to India, Greek became the language because that's what Alexander had. You might wonder, why are there Alexandrias all over the place? There's one in Virginia. Alexander the Great conquered Virginia? No, that's not why. But there's an Alexandria in Egypt. There's an Alexandria here and there and everywhere in the Middle East because they kept naming cities after the conqueror, Alexander the Great, he's known as. He took Greek everywhere. He pacified people everywhere. Then Rome came. Rome did have a different language, but they wanted to be known as cultured as well, and so they kept Greek for the language of culture. They did make Latin their legal language back in Italy, but uh, everybody had Greek already, so they left it Greek. What Rome did was really pacified the whole of empire that had been Alexander's, built roads, took the pirates out of the Mediterranean. There was a peace over the whole Mediterranean world called the Pax Romana, the Peace of Rome. 
and people could travel from one end of the empire to the other and, and be safe, relatively speaking. And God says, you know, at the, in the fullness of time, at the very best of times, God sent his son made of a woman made under the law. The very best of times. In the peace of Rome, God sent his son Jesus so that not only he could die for sins, but then the word of it could get out to all the world. Number four says, the books of the Bible were collected and arranged and recognized as inspired sacred authority by councils of rabbis and councils of church leaders based on careful guidelines. I want you to know, I didn't write this, and I don't exactly agree with that. They were recognized as sacred authority by the congregations, by the the synagogues of the cities of the Jews and the congregations of the churches across the empire. There was no buddy sitting up there saying, well, you and me, we're, the, we're in charge here. We'll say, we take Jeremiah. I'm not real clear about Ecclesiastes. We'll take Lamentation. They didn't do that. It wasn't the councils that determined. The councils did meet and wrote down what the people had agreed. This is God's word and this is not God's word. It was not top-down deciding what belongs in the Bible and what didn't. There were other, in the first century, other gospels, so-called gospels. Thomas and Judas and Peter, all people put their names on books they'd written and claimed to be gospels of Jesus, and they were not. And they were not accepted. They were never any competition. They were recognized as spurious, and the ones that belonged were recognized as belonging by the people the quality of them continued to be recognized. So it wasn't so much... The councils of rabbis did write down that they had recognized the Bible, the Old Testament as we have it, in a certain council called Jamnia, but they were just recognizing what had already been recognized by the people of Judaism. And the church leaders did recognize in the 4th and 5th century and 6th century what the people of the churches of Europe had come to conclude these are the books and no others it was the people that determined it god gave it to the people number five is kind of obvious before the printing press was invented the bible was copied by people taking out their smartphones and taking pictures of each page Um, no no that wasn't it it was copied by hand the bible was copied very accurately in many cases by special scribes who developed intricate intricate methods of counting words and letters to ensure that no errors had been made. What do you mean counting words and letters? Well, there were distinct pages, even though they were sometimes scrolled, they were still a page had two columns or three columns and then it went on to the next. But every page, the letters were counted. All the aleph's in the Old Testament, all the baits, all the gimels, all the dalits, they'd count and know the total number of any particular letter on a page. And when they made a copy, they'd count the letters again and made sure it was the right number of each letter of the alphabet. They'd count specific words and get the word count right. They'd find the middle word of each page and make sure it was the middle word. They'd find the middle word of each book. They'd All kinds of just mechanical devices to check that it had been copied accurately to ensure that no errors had been made. Did it work? Oh, it worked so very well. But we came away from copying by hand, and we're so glad we did. 
I remember growing up with the, the paper in elementary school that Bill Cosby described. He said, you know, paper so rough that it still had chunks of wood floating around in it. And he'd give you a, a pencil as big as a horse's hind leg, and you set one end up on your shoulder, and you write, A, B, teacher, can I have another piece of paper? I'm sorry, I still like Bill Cosby. He was one of my friends when I was young. <sighs> I know, he's a mess now. The Bible was the first book ever printed on a printing press with movable type called the Gutenberg Press in 1455. It was a Latin Bible. It was not an original Greek or Hebrew Bible. It was a translation of the Latin Bible that was the one done by Jerome in the 400s called the Latin Vulgate by his publishing company who liked that name because it was already a popular name they used the name Latin Vulgate on earlier Latin translations, and Jerome used it and swiped it, I'm thinking. Number seven, there is much evidence that the Bible we have today is remarkably true to the original writings. Of the thousands of copies made by hand before A.D. 1500, this document that I'm reading from says over 5,300 Greek manuscripts from the New Testament alone, still exist today. Well, I knew this was done a few years ago, and so I looked it up, and as of, as of yesterday or the day before in Wikipedia, it, it now says over 5,800 Greek New Testament manuscripts have been discovered. Why does the number grow? Because we're still discovering. We're still finding, it's not like they're making more manuscripts, handwritten documents. They just haven't found them all yet. So when somebody says the oldest manuscript says, they don't know. It's the oldest one we might know about so far, but it's not necessarily the oldest. oldest. The text of the Bible, oh, I should I throw a little extra stuff in here. In the Greek language, there's over 5,800 documents, handwritten manuscripts of the New Testament. In the Latin language of these early Latin translations, there are over 10,000 manuscripts of the New Testament. In other languages, another 9,300 handwritten manuscripts. In Syriac, one of the early before Latin, there was Syriac, the church you remember in Antioch of Syria. They not only used Greek and Latin and Hebrew, but they had their own language called Syriac. It's not far different from the Babylonian language, but one of the earliest translations, and many of them still survive in manuscript form, the Syriac. The Slavic up into Europe, the Slavs were reached early. The Gothic, Gothic I didn't realize until a few years ago when I was teaching this, is kind of an ancestor to English. You, I don't know if, if you've ever seen the Dutch language. We, when I was a nine-year-old kid, we drove through Holland, and we could see billboards on the side of the road, and if we tried to understand the words, we couldn't. But if we read them out loud, we knew what they were saying because the language sounds like English. It just doesn't look like English. So we just phonetically pronounce. And Gothic is like that. You can lay a Gothic text of, of a familiar passage down, and if you pronounce what it looks like it says, just pronounce the letters, you'll sort it out. 
you'll be able to understand it. It's not a magic thing. Languages have a lot in common. So anyway, Slavic, Gothic, Ethiopic is from Ethiopia, Coptic is another Egyptian area language, Nubian further down into Africa, and Armenian, which is the, the sad, sad place in the parts of what we call Turkey now, where the huge group of Armenian, ethnically Armenian people were slaughtered in the beginning of the 20th century. A great genocide happened there, and the Armenians were just about wiped out. But, um, those languages, there are seven other languages besides Latin that the New Testament exists in. 19,300 copies in the other languages and, and 5,800 in Greek. There's a lot of evidence of what the text of the New Testament was. There's not much doubt of what the text of the New Testament was. The text of the Bible, the slide goes on and says, the text of the Bible is better preserved than the writings of Caesar and Plato and Aristotle. I've got on my shelves at home a copy of Caesar's Wars and Plato's stuff and some of Aristotle's stuff. I don't read them, I just have them just be, you know, show off. I'm an educated person. But we, I, of course, have them in translation. I don't read Caesar and Plato and Aristotle in their original language, but nobody doubts the English version of Julius Caesar's Gallic Wars that we have is probably pretty close to what he wrote, but there's something like seven manuscripts of Julius Caesar, Gallic Wars, and fewer of Plato and Aristotle. I mean, it's just things that everybody accepts are so much more they're poorly attested compared to the New Testament. It's, it is hugely better. Number eight's interesting. The discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls confirmed the astonishing reliability of some of the copies of the Old Testament made over the years. Although some variations exist, mostly spelling variations, no variation affects basic Bible doctrines. In the Dead Sea Scrolls, just to briefly mention this, there are, they were found in the late 1940s, early 1950s. The kids are out playing near the rocks and with the rocks and throwing rocks at each other and they miss each other and they toss a rock down into a cave and they hear this crash and, oh, that sounded like Mama's pot, Mama's vase broke. And he went and looked and sure enough, his randomly thrown rock into this cave had hit an earthen jar and it broke and made the noise. And inside the earthen jar were some old manuscripts, handwritten scrolls, and they found lots of them. And they've, so far, and still finding things, but so far, since the 19, late 1940s, found copies of, among other things, mostly Bible, but some other things as well, but all the books of the Old Testament except Esther. And why not Esther? I don't know. Esther... The only thing I can think about Esther is that it doesn't include the name God. It's been noticed that Esther doesn't mention the name of God. She certainly, the, the story of Esther certainly reveals the hand of God, the providence of God, but it doesn't use his name. So maybe these people didn't like Esther. I don't know. But those scrolls that were found in the 1940s and 50s and still today being found were done, were written between 150, 200-ish B.C. and 70 or 100 A.D. That's when they were written and produced and put in the jars and put in the caves and left alone. 
there's one very, very complete scroll of the book of Isaiah. In, the, in Jerusalem now, they have its own museum for these, these copies of the Bible. They call it the Shrine of the Book. It's a round-shaped building, and in the center of it, the core of it, has a facsimile, an exact copy of this Isaiah scroll wrapped around the center. So you can walk from one end of Isaiah to the other and read it if you read Hebrew. And I think I read that it differs from the copy of Isaiah that we use behind our King James Bible, the Masoretic text, in seven words. In all of Isaiah, seven words. I'm going to stick to it until somebody corrects me. That's what I think. Nothing that affects doctrine. Isaiah is the best preserved of all those books of the Old Testament in that matter. But going on in number nine, as the Bible was carried to other countries, it was translated into the common language of the people by scholars who wanted to know God's word. Today, there are still, it says, 2,000 groups with no Bible in their own language. I think that number maybe have shrunk somewhat, but it's still over 1,000 people that don't have the Bible in their own language. They may be able to access the Bible in a language that they use for a trade language, but there are still groups that have no access to the written word of God because they don't have any written language understanding. That's a shame. By AD 200, the Bible was translated into seven languages. I read off eight, so I don't know which one was earlier. By AD 500, into 13 languages. By AD 900, into 17 languages. By AD 1400, into 28 languages. By 1800, into 57 languages. By 1900, into 537 languages. And by 1980, more than 1,100 languages. We're getting at it, but it's not done yet. I'm going to leave that list and go looking now at kind of a timeline. Around 1500 B.C., Moses is instructed by God, it says it in the book, to write. To write. There are people that when Jesus said Moses wrote, they said, oh, Moses didn't know how to write. That's an old tradition. That's a myth. That's a fairy tale. But Jesus said, Moses wrote. And I'm not one of those that's willing to say Jesus was wrong. I'd rather suggest that the supposed scientists that say they didn't have writing in Moses' day might have been mistaken because Jesus said Moses wrote. And God used Moses and told him to write down the law for the people. The first five books of the Old Testament, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, called the law of Moses called the Pentateuch, that's a Greek name for the five books. It was written in Hebrew, of course. Between then and 400 B.C., the whole rest of the Old Testament was written. Books of history and prophecy and poetry are written by Samuel, maybe by Joshua. We didn't name Joshua here, but by Samuel and David the king and Solomon the king and Daniel, the boy who was carried captive over to Babylon and yet received such great prophetic understanding and help from God to survive. Ezekiel, the prophet, Jeremiah, the prophet, and the other, Amos and the other prophets. And just most of it in Hebrew, a little bit in Aramaic. Between 500 and 400 B.C., scribes copy these books as originals wear out. That does happen. 
this that I'm using here tonight as, as a copy of the Bible has some places in it that are worn out, and I don't use this very much because of that. I can turn the pages uh, in the New Testament, and some places I, they just fly off and lay on the floor until I pick them up again. It's worn out. When they wore out, they made copies. You might remember that the kings of Israel were each one instructed to write for themselves a copy of the law, not just read it day by day for themselves, but they had to write their own copy. The kings had to. Now, I'm not sure they all did, but that was what it was in the instructions. In around 450, Ezra, who was returned from captivity to rebuild and reestablish the worship in Jerusalem, he collects and arranges the books according to Jewish tradition. And so perhaps in around 450, the books that had been written up to that point are put together in a volume. There's the books of Moses that they did have together before that, and the books of history and the prophets and the writings. And we call it the Old Testament because we've got a new testament or a new covenant. Between 250 and 100 B.C., somewhere in that time frame, the Hebrew Bible, the scriptures, were translated into Greek by Jewish scholars because there was a lot of Greek speaking going on since Alexander the Great. Most people call the Greek translation the Septuagint. That's kind of a bogus name, but it, everybody knows what you mean by it, so it's okay to use it. There were many Greek translations of the Old Testament that were done. In around 300 A.D., a scholar, a Christian scholar, though he's kind of heretical, a Christian scholar named Origen in the city of Alexandria published a book that had the Hebrew text and six different Greek texts of the Old Testament. It was called the Hexapla. There's a lot of Greek translation of the Old Testament that's been done. There wasn't just a Septuagint. The reason I said the name Septuagint is bogus, well, the word means 70. There's a fairy tale kind of explanation that somebody wrote down in a letter much later than any of this happened that said, well, the story I got was that they got 72, not 70, but 72 men from Israel to go down to Alexandria. They put them in 72 different rooms with their writing materials. They gave them copies of the Hebrew Bible. And these 72 men in 72 days each produced the whole Bible in Greek and they were all 72 identical copies. When they came out, they were all identical. Do you see why I'm calling that a myth and a fairy tale? That's not a very good answer. But certainly it was translated. The, the quality of it varies. There is something published by Zondervan today called the Septuagint. It's in English, and it's for English people to use. It's got the Greek text, and it's got English forewords and notes and things in it. But it's not the Septuagint. I don't know what the Septuagint is. Can you use it? Well, I wish I could. I read Greek a whole lot better than I read Hebrew, and I don't read Greek that well. But it would be easier if it was just right, but it's not. 
some places, even the, the chapters in the Psalms are numbered different and you get lost trying to find something. The, uh, the, the verses are numbered differently. It's just wrong here and there. It's not as well done as just following the Hebrew originally. It's just not as good. It's an early witness to the state of the Hebrew Bible, but the, uh, the Hebrew Bible is better. So. Somewhere between 100 B.C. and 100 A.D., the Dead Sea Scrolls were produced thereabouts. Copies of portions of Old Testament books and other writings sealed in clay jars and hidden in caves until we found them in around 1947-48. Somewhere between 6 B.C. and 30 A.D., Jesus came. Well, I'm not going to worry about the dates. I didn't make this, as I said. <clears throat> around 45 to 100 Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Paul, Peter, Jude, James, write letters and historical accounts to churches and friends throughout the Roman Empire. They quote from all but eight of the Old Testament books. Now, I haven't checked that out, but that's an interesting thing. They're using the Hebrew Bible. They're using all of it, almost. I wonder what the eight are. I'd have to search that out someday. From 100 to 500 A.D., the writings of Jesus' followers that we call the New Testament are translated from Greek into other languages and spread across the world as far as India and China. This says around two to 300, Christianity reaches Britain. I might challenge that later on, too. Um, there's a church. I'm trying to remember the name of the town. I saw it last night on television, but I can't say it now. There's a church in England that claims that they were started by Joseph of Arimathea. Now, I don't think that's necessarily true, but that's interesting that they would make that claim. They also claim that uh, in their town, the remains of King Arthur are buried. So everybody in England got a little hold of this or that story. But when, in around 400 AD, the Pope sent missionaries of Roman Catholicism to go to England, they didn't go to take an unknown story of Christianity to these pagan people. They went to get these people who were already Christians fixed because they were not Catholic, because there's been Christianity in Ireland and Scotland and the various Wales and the parts of England. There had been a Christianity there before Catholicism ever got there. They didn't like it because they had Easter on the wrong day. They didn't like it because they didn't have the calendar the same. They didn't like it for a variety of reasons. We're, that's another part of the study. But Christianity did get early to Britain. There is, I should mention, there is a... I can't back up this one. Let me back up this one. There you go. There's a poem that still exists, I think, in an 8th... It's either a 14th century or an 8th century French document that quotes an earlier poem that claims to be from the 400s that talks about Paul making it to Britain. That's an early myth, an early story, but who knows how far Paul went when he said, I want to get to Spain. It's just around the corner and up the hill there, and there he is. So I don't know. Christianity got to Britain early. Somewhere between 250 and 350, the leaders of the church, they called the church fathers, they accept the writings of the Gospels and Paul's letters as canonical, from a Greek word that refers, the word canon, that refers to the ruler. You know, a canon was a piece of cane 
like down in the, the Nile Valley there where the bulrushes are, cannon, cane, they used them for rulers, you know, to draw a straight line or to measure short distances. And cannon refers to it's straight, and it also refers to it's the ruler, it's the, the determiner of, you know, what's 12 inches, that's a foot. Canonical means it comes up to, the, it measures up, right? literally it measures up. Now, this again presents it as though the leaders made the decision. The councils did meet. They made lists, but the, they, uh, they really were just recognizing what the people of their churches had recognized. The churches sent messengers. They sent their pastors. They sent their, their, their priests, their bishops, whatever, to meet in these councils. And they said, we, we use these 27. What do you, we use the same 27. Well, that's good. That's good. They met and they um, listed the same 27 books that we use today in the New Testament. A.D. 325 is given as the date of the codex we call Vaticanus. A codex is a book. It's a book as opposed to a scroll. The Vaticanus, it's as a fine, early, handmade copy of nearly all the Bible resided in the Vatican Library since 1481. It says was released to scholars in the, early, in the late 1800s. Oh, they, they still sat on it. They did not want it to come out. It is fine, it is early, but it has page, page after page after page where there's been attempts to erase and rewrite, and there's places where it's, it's a problem to tell what it originally said. It just is. And it's been in the Vatican Library since 1481, and yet it was written in maybe 325. Uh, it's Greek, which you say, that's great, it's the New Testament, right? Yeah, but it's also the Old Testament in Greek. Oh, hmm, wonder which one they used. It's pretty. Most of the manuscripts of the Greek New Testament get used, get worn out. Pages fall out. You've got to put them together, hold them with a rubber band. This one's pretty. Why? They kept it hidden away. They didn't use it. Sinaiticus dates maybe a few years later. Another fine, early, handmade copy of all the New Testament, part of the Old Testament, again in Greek. It doesn't have any Hebrew in it. Discovered in 1844 at what is called St. Catherine's Monastery at Mount Sinai by a man named Tischendorf. And he bought it, or stole it, I'm not sure. But 1859 is the date they give to when he got it. It's supposed to date from 350. It's these two, not these two, excuse me, Sinaiticus and one other one called Alexandrian Manuscript um, that the British Museum bought from the Russians before it was the Soviet Union. Um, those are both, those two are in the British Museum Library in London. I've seen them in their case. They didn't let me handle them. They're just really pretty. They've not been handled. This discovered in 1844 in the monastery, um, they, the people that write about it say it was in a waste bin. It was getting ready to be burned. They weren't going to keep it to use it. These two, Vaticanus and Sinaiticus, are the ones that you might find reference to if you use 
an other than King James Bible and look in the margin here and there and it says the oldest and best manuscripts have or have the, they use that phrase oldest and best they're talking about these two Vaticanus and Sinaiticus they're old that doesn't make them the best in the western part of the Roman Empire the language more and more and more was Latin by 400 AD most of the western part of the Roman Empire couldn't do Greek the eastern part of the Roman Empire centered on Constantinople Istanbul now used to be called uh, Byzantium they speak Greek they're Greeks this is Greece and Turkey and all of that part of the Middle East they Greek was their language until the Arab conquest Greek was the language they still today use the same Bible that they used in the first century they don't need it translated it's in Greek that's their language so there are thousands of manuscripts from that part of the world they wrote them down they used them up they copied them over they were in the West they went to Latin they translated it in 410 it says Jerome was commissioned by Pope Damasus, Damasus to translate the Bible into Latin they called it the Latin Vulgate it took 22 years to do you know what it took 22 years to do he was pretty good in Latin and Greek he didn't know a bit about Hebrew he, he about like I am so he moved from Rome to Bethlehem the, that Bethlehem right outside of Jerusalem and he hired himself a rabbi and he sat down with him and said can you teach me Hebrew and he said son I could easier do this for you than teach you Hebrew but they worked on it and worked on it and worked on it 22 years he finally said all right it's gonna have to do we got to get this out there and they called it the Latin Vulgate now Vulgate is a word that means the common Bible the Bible that all the people will use right like it's it's not a bad word it's a word that means common like the word we say vulgar today and think it means bad but it doesn't it just means everyday common the Greek language has a word like that it's koine it means the common language the common Greek the Greek that's used on the street in English we just call it everyday English the Vulgate he took the name that had already been in use I think there was a center of learning in Antioch of Syria the same place that sent Paul and Barnabas out to do missions work where they had people that understood Hebrew and Greek and they had people coming back to them from the mountains of Italy and of Switzerland and France we would call it saying we're Christians but we don't have the Bible and a language can read and they said well here we'll help you get from Greek and Hebrew into your language into Latin and so translations done I think in Antioch of Syria from the Greek text of the Bible that was the same as what we use today and they got called the old Latin text the old Latin text exists in those mountains in Europe it exists some places in North Africa and it predates Jerome's work by 200 years but it got known as the common Latin Bible that got known as the Latin Vulgate and when Jerome got the official version ready to go he said we're going to use their name and he called his the Vulgate of Jerome stole the name and made them call theirs well that's the old Latin that's different 
Yeah. Let me back up just a second. I skipped one. 4.30, it says, Patrick evangelizes Ireland. I told you it was early. Patrick was born in what we would call Scotland. His father was a deacon in the church. <laughs> a deacon. I don't know the structure of the church, but I know a deacon is more important than somebody that's not a deacon. And he rebelled as a teenager. He didn't want anything to do with that. And then the Irish pirates came and captured his whole place and took him as a slave back to Ireland. And Patrick in Ireland keeping pigs, sounds a lot like the prodigal son, keeping pigs, and he prayed. He said, get me out of here, God, if you're really a real God, get me out. And he just walked away from the pig farm and headed for the coast. And God said, go to the coast. And he went to the coast, and there's a boat there loading animals. And he says, you've got to take me. God sent me to you. He said, we're not going to take you. He says, I'll, I'll help you with the animals. And so they took him. And he wanted to just go back to Scotland. The storm took the boat all the way over to France. <laughs> and he goes ashore in France, and he's hungry and tired, and eventually makes it back to Scotland. But he's a changed young man. And he, he's gotten a hold of God. He somehow has understood the gospel. And he's, he feels that God wants him back in Ireland, where the pirates took him, to share the gospel with those that had made him a slave. And he does that, and he's very successful, and hundreds and hundreds are saved and baptized in Ireland. Well, one of his followers years later steals a copy of the book of, I think it was Psalms, from his, the guy that owned it, one of the lords of Ireland, to make himself a copy of it. And he made a copy, and he put back the original. And the guy says, that's mine too. And <laughs> Anyway, it was a bad Bad choice. They, there was a lot of bloodshed. And so the followers, a generation later of Patrick, escape back and they don't go. They go to a little place kind of far up north in Scotland, a little island called Iona. And they start what the Roman Catholics like to call a, a monastery, but it's a Bible college. They start a Bible college and they start teaching the Bible. And they don't just teach the Bible, they get them fired up and the young graduates of the Bible College go out not just to Scotland and not just to England but to the, all of mainland Europe and down into Italy and over to the, far, the Middle East. I mean, they go and go and go. They're still in Rome. The evidence of them having been there, is they, they live on. But uh, we're not the first. <laughs> we're not the first. We're going to run out of time here, and I, I know I droned on for a while. This is not the best way to present this. I've just been boring, and I'm sorry. We're going to get some more visual aids. There is, I suppose, a first Polaroid picture of Jerome that was ever done. <laughs> 3042, maybe, to 420. The first Christians wrote their New Testament in Greek and joined it to the Greek Septuagint translation of the Old Testament. Years later, the language of the common people was language instead of Latin instead of Greek. And so Jerome was asked to do the whole thing. And well, well I, I'm going to be finished with John's Gospel in Sunday school here in just another week. 
And I think I'm going to pick this study up in Sunday school time. So if, you, if you're interested in it, it'll be there, and it'll be better than just this dry, dry talk that I did tonight. But uh, there's a lot of information that we haven't time to, to cover tonight. The young people are here from Oana, but before I let, it, let them do something if they need to, you need to understand if you're watching this, we have a Bible that tells us about salvation. Once upon a time, a 15-year-old boy was tricked into going to a Bible study where he heard the best thing he'd ever heard. He saw a man do this. He said, this hand represents you and me. This wallet represents sin. We've all got sin on us. This represents Jesus. The verse in the Bible says, he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. And that night I heard 1 John chapter 5, verse 13. These things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. God wrote it down. When I went in that meeting that evening, I was not in the group it was written to. But that night I joined the group that said, yes, I believe on the name of the Son of God. And that verse of the Bible, 1 John 5, 13, was written to me that I may know that I have eternal life. Because I'm in the group that believes in Jesus. What he did on the cross makes it make sense. He died in my place. He paid the penalty for my sin. And he gives me his perfect righteousness for when I have to stand in front of God. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes. If you've heard this tonight and you wondered why he's rattling on about that, it's all because this Bible means so much to us. It's how we have any knowledge of God. But we wouldn't. We just wouldn't have much to talk about if it wasn't for the truth that I just mentioned. You can know that you have eternal life. You can know that when you die, you'll go to heaven. And you can only know that if you realize Jesus did what he did for you. He was the Son of God, the one God sent to be the substitute for us. As Trent said so well this morning, God the Father looked on the suffering of Jesus' soul and was satisfied. He was satisfied for my sins. And I believe in Jesus. If you've never before believed in Jesus, there's no more to it than that. You don't join a group I said those words, but you don't join a group. You just believe in Jesus. That puts you in the group that believe on the name of the Son of God. And when you're in that group, the Bible says you can know that you have eternal life. I hope you'll do that before, before it's ever too late, just between you and God. I don't understand everything you said, God, but I hear Jesus died for me, and I, I believe in him. The promise is to you. You may know that you have eternal life. You believe on the name of the Son of God. Father in heaven, thank you for this word of God and the great confidence we can have in it. How so many, so many over the so many hundreds of years worked so very hard to keep it right so that we could have it today and know it is your word. Thank you for that. In Jesus' name.